Well, hello, friends, and welcome to Zippy the Wonder Snail. This is episode 11, and we have so much to jump into with you today. We are ready and raring to go, and I have my pumpkin spice coffee to power me through it. It's going to be great. And of course, I have the witticism and insights of my comrade Jason to power us through it as well. Hey, Jason. Hey, how are you doing, Tim? I'm doing great. How about you? Great. Just great. You know, Jason, I don't think I've ever asked you, what is your take on pumpkin spice? Uh, I don't know, because I don't drink coffee. What about other kinds of pumpkin spice? Uh, pumpkin spice cookies, pumpkin spice, everything. Fair enough. Let's do it. I mean, I like pumpkin pie, so. Okay, maybe we need to have an official Zippy the Wonder Snail taste test sometime this fall. I'm all in favor of it. Yeah, that that could be our first live episode. Ooh. Anyway, uh, speaking of live events, our first topic for tonight is about one of St. Louis's favorite kinds of live events. That's baseball. And we've had an interesting season as St. Louis Cardinals fans. Or for those of you that aren't, maybe you've been enjoying this season a little too much at times. But there have been some really wonderful moments. And Jason, why don't you just take us through what's happened uh, so far this year with the Cardinals? It's been a little up and down. Uh, better since the break, but they've blown a lot of games at the end. Alex Reyes is no longer in the closer's role. Offense, again, inconsistent. You know, I think uh, run differential, they're like a minus 23. So it's been a struggle, but they still have a shot. So let's do this. Very good. Uh chance for them to make the playoffs and we just had the Dodgers in town I think that's what we're going to talk about uh, in this segment so yeah this Dodgers Cardinals series was really special with the return of Albert Pujols Uh, of course they were hyping up ahead of time this may be the last time we see Albert play in Bush Stadium and in the process of that we also have two of his friends and two longtime Cardinals uh, Adam Wainwright and Yadier Molina edging towards new records that they're setting as well. Uh, just a really special time with some longtime veterans, sort of the the towering figures of this era of Cardinals baseball all playing there together, uh, or in the case of Albert, playing against his two friends. Uh, really something special. What did you make of that series? Well, it was a wonderful series. And when Albert did get into the game, uh, when he played in the first game, he hit a home run. Um, so, uh, yeah, I was mad, but it was hard to be too mad because it was like Albert just doing what Albert had done so many times. 445 runs with the Cardinals, over 1,300 RBIs with the Cardinals, second in most of those categories to stand the man. So just wonderful to see Albert again. He's been absolutely unbelievable against left-handed pitching this year. So even in limited time, Albert has 17 home runs uh, this season. So the average isn't good. He's not running very well, but he can still hit. If you miss with a pitch, it's going to leave the yard. So poor J.A. Happ missed with a pitch, and Albert did not miss uh, to lead the Dodgers to a home run. So, But, you know, the Dodgers have 88 wins. Um, and they're sitting in the first wild card spot and still trying to chase the San Francisco Giants. Um, so for the Cardinals to battle back and win two out of those four after playing pretty poorly in the first two games is pretty impressive. Um, and I want to talk about in the third game, uh, Wainwright uh, nearly finished the game. Yes. He pitched eight a third, and he ended up getting charged with four runs because two scored after he left the game. But it was an incredible performance, and he won his 15th game of the year, and he's second in the National League and wins right now. He has a legitimate shot to win the Cy Young Award, and he just turned 40 years old. So Wayno really getting it done. 
Albert's getting it done. Yachty's Yachty. Couple big hits for Yachty this weekend. So just what a wonderful weekend. I want to say while I'm at it, Tim, that the Dodgers uh, were my father's team. So it's it's also really hard uh, to root against the Dodgers in any form or fashion. But since I'm a Cardinals fan through and through, I had to do it. They're quite good. They're so deep, these Dodgers. So they have a legitimate shot to win this whole thing. Um, and hopefully we can sneak in there um, at the end, make the playoffs, and get through the wild card game. And we'll see. Yeah, I would love to see another NLCS, that's the Dodgers versus the Cardinals. That, that's so much fun when that happens. Um, and that would be really epic with Albert Wayno and Yachty playing in their respective positions for that. One thing I, I wanted to get your take on, though, is not so much this year, but what about next year? And I've seen a number of people, uh, for example, Mike Claiborne on KMOX has been advocating for this, and, and I know in my own head I've been advocating for it, or some people might say, well, not your head, it's just your heart. But it, it seems as though there's a good chance that Albert's going to try to eke out another year, and you can't help but think, with Yachty saying next year's going to be his year that he retires after, uh, Wayno saying his family just voted to have him go one more year as well, and hopefully the Cardinals will sign him. What do you think about the idea of signing Albert to a one-year contract so he can get some of those records he's shooting for and actually have him retire a Cardinal? Uh, to me, it just would be an amazing story. Um I think the possibility is a live one because the nas- the the DH is coming to the National League. Suppose that's your lament for the the DH coming to the National League. Yes, um, but that's a whole bunch more jobs that will open up possibilities that need filled uh, with guys. Again, that gives an opportunity to some, for someone like Albert, who maybe isn't real fit to play the field anymore, doesn't run super well, uh, to keep his bat in the lineup, and it's still really effective. Part, part-time player this year, basically, and he still has 17 home runs, so guy can still hit the ball, and, and I think it's a good possibility, but I also think uh, that if he knows what's good for him, he'll stay with the Dodgers, because these guys are loaded, and they could use him. They never have too many guys with power, um, and they love their depth. That's why they're so scary, the Dodgers, in their depth. So, you know, Max Muncy is is in the top five in National League in home run, and he doesn't even start every game for the Dodgers. So they have some serious depth over there, and Albert can be part of that. So I think he's coming back to the Dodgers, uh, but if he comes to St. Louis, I'm all for it because we're not going to have Matt Carpenter anymore. That's going to free up some cash. Uh, we're not going to be paying a couple other guys uh, that are coming off the books. So they're going to have money to pay some guys. So maybe it's Albert, maybe it's somebody else. Who knows? Yeah, I keep thinking it from so many different perspectives. It feels like it'd be such a perfect thing. I mean, Albert is contributing this year. He's a, a real asset to the team that he's on. It's not like it'd be purely for sentimental reasons um and yet just the opportunity the cardinals would have if they could get him if the dodgers didn't give him too much right out of the gate the the opportunity the cardinals would have to to have this historic year as we say goodbye to a generation of players would be just so special and some of the the things like yadi has just been ticking away at some of the records that albert had set and if Albert were to come back on the team, you'd have them going back and forth tag team all year long, probably on some of that stuff. I, I think it could just be fascinating and fun. And I don't know, it, the Cardinals have been eking by this year. And I'm, I'm so glad that we're looking in the middle of September at at least the possibility of October baseball. But if it doesn't happen this year, it seems like with a few right moves, 
it could also give all three of them a good shot at a World Series next year, which would be be wonderful. I agree, and I mean, Goldschmidt needs a backup, and I, I just want to say more generally about the Cardinals. I think whatever happens this year, the Cardinals next year are going to be very, 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 very good. A serious threat to win the entire thing. So, um... Albert could be a part of that. Maybe another big bat could be a part of that. I think we don't realize just how talented the Cardinals actually are, and those young outfielders are coming into their own. Tyler O'Neill is a star and a legitimate MVP candidate going forward, uh, and Harrison Bader is growing. Dillison, Dylan Carlson is obviously an emerging star. So the Cardinals have things to work with, and their pitching staff is still very, very deep. Had a lot of injuries this year, but considering all of that, it to still be fighting for a wild card is incredible so next year when they reload it's going to be fun I, I do hope that we get there this year and just think how much fun it would be though if we could do hashtag 12 and 21 i mean it is just a perfect anagram it'd be great agreed agreed well let's hope for that uh we of course can't be certain of that but we can be certain of other things and that's what we find in god's word it's one of the things i appreciate actually about adam wainwright is that he loves to point out the truth of god's word in the platform that he's been given as a mlb superstar and we are not superstars we're not even cy young candidates or neither of us even have a single mlb record to our name but we do participate in the faithtree.com men's bible study And it's a great opportunity for all of us, even just average Joes like us, to spend some time in God's Word, realizing what the promises of God are together, because we can help remind each other of those things as we struggle through various things in life, and simply unpack more of what God has placed in there for us. It's a wonderful opportunity every Thursday night, and we would love to have you be a part of it. I know, personally, I just love Jason comes every week with cross-references to to help us see the connections between different parts of the Bible, and we always have great discussions on that. And I love what each of the different men in it brings to it. It's a, it's a really special time. Yeah, I appreciate you inviting me back then. and It's been over a year and a half now, so I'm very thankful. Well, I'm so glad that you joined then and that you're still a part of it, and I hope that some of our listeners become a part of it going forward. It really is a time that we would love to share with you, and you can find out more at faithtreecf.org. want to take a turn for something a little more serious, and it's a topic that has been gripping our national discussion the last few weeks with the the law that just went into effect in Texas concerning abortion. Jason, why don't you walk us through what's going on on the abortion front legally right now, and let's dig into that a bit. Well, Texas basically passed a law prohibiting prohibiting abortions after a heartbeat is detected. And one portion of the law was that um, other citizens could sue abortion providers uh, for providing that service. 
contrary to the law, and on the shadow docket at the Supreme Court, by a 5-4 to four decision, the court decided uh, to leave it alone. They said they didn't really have standing or a basis to challenge the law, though they said they might in the future. But Chief Justice Roberts said, uh, we don't even know who this law is directed at, so we can't really uh, challenge it on constitutional grounds, and let's see what happens. Uh, I mentioned to you off the air, there's a case from Mississippi about a 15-week abortion ban in that state that has much more actual potential to threaten Roe v. Wade and the justices could reconsider Roe v. Wade uh, when the Mississippi case reaches them. So in the fall, maybe in the winter this year, we could see uh, something we haven't seen in our entire lives, which is Roe v. Wade and or um, Planned Parenthood versus Casey be overturned. Very exciting. Um, Hopeful. For Christians across the country, uh, we could actually see that. Yeah, there's all the usual arguments and rancor going on just in the general population and, of course, the talking heads. I really appreciate what you wrote and Open for Business last week about abortion. And you, you boiled down the the question of whether we should permit it or not to really something about how we react to it. And I think something that's very insightful that you brought up is that virtually everyone, not everyone, but virtually everyone, including many of those on the pro-choice side, say that it is at least desirable to have abortion be rare, that no one wants more abortions, even if they want more abortion to be permissible. And, and you use that to make the case against abortion. And maybe you'd like to say a little bit more about that. Right, because uh, it ends up being a question of, well, why do we find it unpleasant? If we're just dealing with a clump of cells, um, then how is that any different than, say, a hangnail or a tumor or something of that nature? And the reason why we're uncomfortable with it the reason why most people profess themselves to be uncomfortable with it or to find it undesirable is that they know in their conscience that it involves the death of a human being. So I think, I think I'm going to deal with this a lot more in another piece on abortion that may be coming up soon for Open for Business. But the question is, what is that when we're dealing with an unborn child? What is it? And if it is something that, uh, is not alive, then we shouldn't have any qualms about it at all. And if we do, then we need to revisit those qualms, and maybe that is telling us about the true nature of the act itself. Because we can, again, and I'll say this more in the future, we can talk about hard cases till we're green in the face. But the bottom line is, what is the nature of this act in itself? And what is the nature of that being? Um, that is killed in that procedure. So if it's a human being, um, then that is the, that's the root of the discomfort, and that's the root of the moral question that is at the very heart of the question of abortion. And I think that's what uh, is being avoided by some sectors on the pro-choice side. There is some ambiguity when they look at the polls of the American people about how they feel about abortion. They're conflicted. They don't want it to be totally illegal for the most part, but about 20, 20% of us on any given day want it to be totally illegal. And then everybody else is sort of in between, and then we have radicals on the other side, of course. What I want to encourage the listeners to think about is that it doesn't necessarily 
It's not a religious question per se. We can reason it out and say, what is this? Um, we can use our reason and get to the nature of the thing itself. And then, but we have to have the courage to be willing to follow through on what we discover. If we discover that we are dealing with human beings in the womb, vulnerable human beings, then we have to have the courage to follow through with what that means. Um, and that would mean, if we're right, that it is a human being, uh, that abortion should be illegal. And it also, again, we could say it has implications for how we treat uh, people once they come out of the womb. That is legitimately true. But it starts with the dignity of all human beings and whether that vulnerable person in the womb is a human being. And then the scaffolding, the moral scaffolding of the pro-life position follows from there. So I think sometimes pro-choice positions are held dishonestly or dancing around uh, the nature of the issue itself, uh, the personhood of the unborn fetus. Um, and it would be better if we just didn't do that. I think you raise an interesting point there, Jason, in that a lot of the arguments I hear from from pro-choice advocates will be along the lines of, well, if you don't do this for people who are elderly or poor or children after they're born or what have you, then you can't actually hold to a pro-life position. And I agree with their critique in as much as they're pointing out there are plenty of times where we're hypocrites and we only focus on one thing. But the problem with that argument is that it's ignoring the real question, which isn't how good are the pro-life advocates, but is the baby before he or she is born a person or not? And and if the baby is a person, it doesn't matter if every single pro-life person is a complete hypocrite and completely sleazy in their argumentation, then if we're actually killing a individual person, we need to confront that head on, regardless of the quality of the advocates. And that's true in, ev- in any kind of case like this. Anytime we're talking about something that we should be doing as a society and we're getting into moral waters, not necessarily, as you said, religious waters, but moral waters at least, the real question is, is it right or wrong, not do we like the people advocating for it or not? And so often I think the problem, and this is why we struggle often to even find consensus in our society, is if I don't like the person advocating for it, I can just dismiss the argument. And that, that's a terrible approach to, to, to reasoning things out. And, and I think what you do in that piece by pointing out that the, even many of the people who would say we need to have safe legal abortion are still squeamish at some level on the idea is that it seems like intrinsically, I think we know that we're talking about a person. We're not talking about a clump of cells. And once we know that, it's really, really uncomfortable if we have to step in and say, yes, this is a person and I don't care what happens to him or her. Right, because almost no one in this society is willing to go that far. Some are, but Many people say, okay, uh, that's an extreme position or there needs to be some recognition that this is not ideal. Um, and most people want to go there, but they don't know, uh, they don't know why that is. Many people don't know why they have discomfort around this issue. And then, and I sort of wanted to, to defang some of the criticisms that I anticipated. So I started right with partisanship and I said, look, people, I'm not a Republican. There are many aspects of Republican platform that I disagree with. And now let's talk about the real issue. So you're not going to be able to use any of that other stuff against me and say, well, I'm not going to listen to the pro-life argument because 
these pro-life people in politics that I don't like uh, also hold that view, you know. Um, and and may and maybe I laid that on a little thick, but I wanted to deep defang the partisan uh, argument that's not even really an argument. It's Republicans hate abortion, so I love abortion. And that's that's a really bad argument, and it takes us away from the nature of what it is. Right. So, yeah, I think that's something that we would benefit from, and it's a great way to approach the topic. One thing I want to make sure we hit on before we run out of time on this segment, though, is uh, areas of compromise. And something that you and I were talking about earlier before the show is this Mississippi case that you referred to when we first opened up uh, that seems like it's going to be the one that really defines abortion law in America in the coming months and years, maybe decades. Because this Texas one, so far, it seems like we're kind of resting on a technicality. It looks like Texas has figured out a way to to come as close to outlawing abortion as any state has since Roe v. Wade, but with the major caveat that it's essentially a, a temporary thing until the Supreme Court weighs in further, is a very novel, kind of unusual, unorthodox law that deputizes citizens to to sue those that assist in abortion, and it's kind of hard to know exactly where that's going to go. But it's a it's a it's an unusual law, and it's probably not going to be the one that's going to be the Supreme Court's defining case on, on abortion. But the the one in Mississippi is interesting because it forbids abortion after 15 weeks, and and I wonder if that's not something that we should really be focused on, if we can get to the point that you talk about in that piece where we all admit that we're we're coming before this asking about the fate of an individual person, then then certainly it would be sensible that if we can move in the direction of, of having fewer abortions, genuinely restricting it, allegedly that's what everybody says they want. And isn't it something that we should then hope for that this this can pass legal muster? Because Right now, in the United States, it's so weird. We're far more radical than Europe on abortion. Uh, what you and I were talking about, uh, most European countries restrict abortion after 12 weeks or forbid it after 12 weeks entirely. We're far more open in the United States with it, which isn't probably what most people would guess if they hadn't looked into the issue. And so, to me, I have a lot of hope here that I think the Supreme Court, even if it's not willing to just outright throw away Roe v. Wade at this point. And we can at least see a movement toward something that starts to purge the evil by restricting abortion that isn't just horrible, but even a radical form of it in most parts of the world, parts of the world that are far less religious and far less focused on sort of the religious side of the pro-life movement than allegedly we are in the United States. Right, and what what's ironic is this hostility to any re- restrictions at all um, belies the question that or the claim that there's something wrong with pro-life activism activism because there's no regulations on abortion at all. If if it, if we're going to talk about hard cases and how legislating against abortion brings all these harms uh, to people in unexpected, dire, hard situations, why are we having that discussion uh, against the backdrop of no restrictions on abortion at all? Um, so I think that that needs to change uh, where we get we get back to some center about, okay, if we really do um, desire some restrictions, if abortion is undesirable, then you have to regulate it at some point. Um, zero restriction is not um, 
a sort of religious uh, religious fascism that is descended. We have zero restrictions, and then we act like we're in uh, we're in an, a Margaret Atwood novel whenever anyone passes some regulations on that. Uh, that was a little bit loaded words there, but um, you know we got to get back to some sort of normalcy where yeah we're not. Uh, trying to outdo Europe in our permissiveness on this. So it'll be interesting to see where it goes. Oh, one more thing I wanted to say about that. The the case law on abortion had established at some point that the states could regulate uh, up to a certain point uh, how abortion is conducted. So one of the ironic things is that uh, as some of the politicians in Congress move to regulate this federally, they actually open up more opportunities for the states to regulate pre-viability with respect to abortion than the case law would probably have permitted. So that's interesting. So in their zeal to preserve uh, the so-called right to choose, they may have opened up opportunities for the fo- further erosion of say, the abortion regime. Uh, And that'll be interesting to follow as it goes along. That will indeed be interesting to see how it develops. I know that we'll need to return to this topic as the Supreme Court works through this Mississippi case and some of the other legal minefields that we see at the moment. And in all that, I know certainly here on, on Zippy, we are hoping that we will get closer to the point where we can see the murder of people. Uh, reduced. That, that that would be something that I know is my prayer, and I know that something that you desire as well, Jason. And, you know, if we can get to it in a way that even those who are non-religious that look at it simply from the fact that we're talking about a person here, if we can get to that point, that would be wonderful. If we could just recognize basic human dignity and the value of human life, uh, that would be truly wonderful. Speaking of dignity and and the value of human life, that's certainly been the sort of language we've seen tossed around an awful lot around vaccines as well. And if you've been listening to Zippy the Wonder Snail, you've heard both Jason and myself talking about this. We've talked about it. We've urged our listeners to get vaccinated. We're we're very interested in the different procedures and and, uh, approaches we can take to see this scourge of a pandemic shut down in the United States and around the world. But there have been some interesting developments in this last week, and a big part of that is the president's announcement that he intends to implement a vaccine mandate. And some of this was was something that we saw coming down the pike for a while. It's been really clear that federal employees were going to be required to get a vaccine, although maybe with an exception if they continue to get tested. That appears to be on its way out. Same for the military. But this announcement that came out last Thursday was that it's not merely those working for the federal government or in the military or even those who are contractors or receiving Medicare or Medicaid funding. All those, of course, are included in this. But it also is the case that the president wants to mandate that all companies that have over 100 employees either must require the vaccine of their employees or require those employees to get tested on it 
on a weekly basis at minimum. So that's a pretty big step beyond what I think most of us were anticipating he was going to do. And it has a bunch of interesting questions it raises. Yeah, and I was and I was thinking about the constitutionality of such an action, which is different than uh, the end result being desirable, because I think you and I both recognize that if more people got vaccinated, we would be out of this mess sooner uh, rather than later, and that would be a good thing. But uh, but I openly wondered before we went on the air uh, if the president actually had the authority to do this, even recognizing that, you know, public health measures uh, give greater power um, to government officials in certain scenarios. Um, but that's not limitless. Um, and nor should it be. So I, I'm I'm curious about the constitutionality of such a move. I think he'll be all right with respect to the federal workers, like you said, and like we said off the air. Uh, but whether uh, this will fly constitutionally is an interesting question, uh, and one that I think is open. I'm not going to say that it, that it absolutely is unconstitutional, but it's something that someone's going to be looking at. Uh, right. Um, because a wartime footing, as we said, would open up some of those Article Two powers of the president. But this is not a war per se; it's it's a public health emergency. So whether that's the same thing, that's that's a legitimate question. So yeah, I think it raises a lot of interesting questions, and I know some people raise similar questions with mask mandates. And in those cases, I've ten- tended to view those questions as more problematic because. To put a piece of cloth on your face isn't really that hard in the middle of a pandemic, and it seems like there's strong precedent going back a couple centuries even that state governments, local governments do have authority to implement certain health standards in the midst of a health emergency. What's interesting to me, and I say this as someone who is pro-vaccine, I'm probably about as pro-vaccine as they come, it still gives me a little bit of pause to have the federal government say private businesses must implement a vaccine mandate. Uh, It seems to be problematic on several levels. For example, it's problematic, I think, to make private businesses have to enforce the will of government. That That's a problem. I also think even if you pulled it away from that and just make it an outright federal mandate, there is the question, do we really want the federal government to have the power, not just to say, hey, put on a piece of cloth so you're not spewing virus particles at the people around you who are innocently going about their day, but inject something into your body. Is, is that a power we want the government to have? And, and again, I'm pro-vaccine. I think everyone should get injected with this particular substance. It it's, seems like the most sensible thing to do based on everything we know It's the safest course of action, both for the individual and for those around them. It seems like the best way out of this. But one thing I've I've often said to people on both sides of the political aisle on other issues is we need to care about not just what impact this has on an issue that we agree with, but what does this say about other issues? Issues I'm not even thinking about right now. Issues that might be implemented if the other party were in power. Etc. And some of this comes back to we were talking about in the the last section on abortion. And and some pro-choice advocates, for example, have raised the the question: Why is it the pro-life advocates will reject my body, my choice when it comes to abortion, but they're playing up the my body, my choice with the vaccine? Again, there's some of that hypocrisy. It doesn't invalidate 
a good righteous argument, but it, it's uh, it's worth discussing at least. Yeah. But for example, those that might jump on this because they support President Biden, but they're also pro-choice, do they really want a Republican president, for example, in the future to have the power to mandate some other health decision that they strongly disagree with? And maybe down the road, it's neither a Democrat or Republican, but some unimaginable third party that's horrible that comes down the pike. Do we want that much power in the federal government? So. I think there's some questions here that you can say as a strongly pro-vaccine person, do we want the president saying everyone that works at a business with 100 employees, that business must require them to get the vaccine? And again, even as a purely political question, uh, in in this society, in a pluralistic society such as ours, uh, established by our constitution, we worry not just about the ends, but also about the process. So uh, much of what is actual politics and governing is a dispute about processes as much as ends. Sometimes we also disagree on ends, but process is very important uh, for legitimacy. And in a democracy, in a representative democracy like our legitimacy is the lifeblood of such an arrangement. So if large portions of the country, and we have seen this before, if large portions of the country believe that a certain political process or action is illegitimate, um, then that threatens uh, the social peace in in this representative government. Um, A rejection of the democratic process among large numbers of people would be very threatening to our country itself. So that's something that we need to talk through, not just ends, but also processes and the validity of certain processes. Uh, And that's sticky because we come from all different ideological backgrounds and everything else, uh, and we... We lived through uh, the 20th century, which was, in a sense, it was the century of tyranny. So we're on guard. A lot of us are on guard in different respects against those tyrannies. So we know certain tyrannies that we don't want, but those don't just happen in a vacuum. Uh, Another interesting topic, I agree with you that federalizing the whole thing is probably a bad idea, Uh, but we'll see what happens. Yeah. In in the meantime, it seems like any time that tyranny is threatened, One of the best things we can do is just go and be sensible. And that goes back to one of the ways we can shut down this conversation. We don't even have to explore if the federal government has this sort of power. Is if those who are are healthy have no reason they shouldn't be able to get the vaccine and can look at probably some of the most extensive research that's been done on on a medical process because millions of people, basically the entire world is the laboratory at the moment. There's so much to say that vaccines are safe. The best thing we can do to shut this down and and avoid this whole question of whether the federal government can force it is simply, if you can get the vaccine, go get it of your own accord. Let's, as individuals, as people worried about our neighbors, both here in the United States and the world, let's just go and care about our neighbors, get vaccinated, and then we don't even have to discuss this and hopefully we won't have to broach the topic in the future with the federal government getting involved in mandating health decisions like that. I agree. Well, we've been talking about a lot of hot topics today, Jason, and where is the best place where people can get insightful commentary that doesn't just go to clickbait titles, doesn't just go to hyperpartisanship, but really engages on hot topics. Where is the best place on the internet where people can go and learn more 
about what we are facing in our culture today. That sounds like my favorite site open for business, OFB.biz, Tim. It does indeed. I I hope all of those of you listening, uh, I'm so thankful you're listening to us on Zippy. Please check out our sister site, OFB.biz. It's been around for nearly 20 years now, and we would love to share it with you. Yeah, oh my Lord, watch me sway. Darkness falls and we all pray. Hoping for the light of day. Down to the river, I have held the devil's hand. Felt the weight of my own sin. Burdened by the heart of man. Down to the river. Down to the river Up on, bury me, carry me Up on, far beneath Up on, far and water me Going down deep Say, up on, bury me, carry me Up on, far beneath Up on, far and water me Watching me clean, kerosene creep Jason, we always like to talk about a topic from the scriptures before we close. And as we end tonight, we're going to pick up the tradition of T.S. Eliot. Eliot once famously said in, in the Four Quartets that in my end is my beginning. And as we end tonight, we're going to turn to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis. You've just started a straight through the Bible reading project, and you are at the beginning of Genesis, correct? Yeah, that's right. I am about 11 chapters into Genesis. Uh, I'm listening to it on audio. And what's really fascinating is that we sort of meet the first big person, not entirely, but one of the first big people is Abraham in Genesis 12, and we sort of meet him in Genesis 11. Uh, But then before that, uh, we have this odd sort of primordial history where we don't get a lot of historical details about when this happened. We get uh, we get the flood narrative from Genesis 6 to 9. Uh, We get the story of Lot, Lot's daughters getting him drunk and strange things happening. But one of the things that's interesting about the scriptures is you you can't reckon with the solution that is Jesus Christ until you reckon with the problem. And we run into the problem in Genesis 3, the fall of mankind, uh, in the garden when they eat of the fruit that God told them not to eat from the tree of good and evil. And if we... Um, if we understand that we have a problem, that we are sinners, that we need redemption, then we will know better that Christ has died for us and uh, is offered for the forgiveness of our sins. So, but if we have no, if we don't know what sin is, or we reject the idea of sin, then the rest of the scripture makes no sense. Uh, words like redemption make no sense. So, and I think also when you're looking at the beginning of the Bible and when you're looking at the Old Testament more generally, people get this idea. Well, uh, you know, the God of the Old Testament is uh, sort of wrathful, and the God of the New Testament is the God of love. But really, the same God wrote both Testaments, and there is a great deal of love and mercy that we see even in those early chapters of the book of Genesis. 
and definitely as we go later uh, into the rest of the story of the patriarchs and certainly in the Joseph story. So let's uh, let's recognize the scope of the problem when we read the early chapters of Genesis, that we are sinners, that we come into this world as sinners, that original sin is a reality. Um so that we can better fully take account of who Christ is and what he came to do. Uh, because redemption, forgiveness, mercy, um, being in the kingdom of God as sons and daughters of God uh, is not just uh, platitudes or things that sound good, but they're based in realities, the, the mercy that comes to us right. through Christ because he died and rose again and sits at the right hand of the Father for us. That's the Christian message that we are sinners, that we have no rights before God in and of ourselves, but we've been restored by His mercy from the beginning and culminating in Christ on the cross. Just wanted to bring us back to the beginning and thereby bring us back to the end, which is the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. Well, I love you taking us there because it is so true. And you, and you think about it, like you said, there is this tendency to, to view the God of the Old Testament as somehow different from the God of the New Testament. And yet, what do we find in Genesis 3? Not only is there the fall and the demonstration of humankind's sinfulness, but there's the first promise of the Messiah right there, Genesis 3.15, that, that yes, the serpent's going to bite the, the heel of the woman's descendants, but one of them is going to crush the head of the serpent. So, yes, Satan got in. Yes, Satan managed to tempt human beings. Yes, we're fallen. And yet, there's already a hint. And at that moment, I'm sure as Adam and Eve heard that, they were more focused on the condemnation of their own sinful actions and probably couldn't begin to comprehend what God had in mind. I'm sure they couldn't. And yet, God's already hinting at it there. And then we see in the next chapter, chapter 4, as Cain is about to to commit the first murder, what's God doing? He's trying to keep him from doing it. God is showing mercy to Cain by warning him of where he's going and the consequences of his action. What does God do after Cain commits murder? He still offers mercy. He he gives a mark to him and promises to, in some sense, protect Cain, even though Cain is clearly not worthy of it. And we see that with Noah and his family and God rescuing them. And of course, like you said, we get to the patriarchs. The very idea that God brings about a people through Abraham so that eventually we get to the Messiah. What a beautiful testimony of God's grace. And I think this is why, if you think back, for those of you that enjoy history, if you go back and look at early church history, you had people trying to focus purely on the New Testament. For example, the famous one is Marcion. And the church said very clearly, very early on, this isn't just sort of wrong, this is heresy. It, it tears apart the whole system of the faith. It actually leads one away from salvation. And, and yet, so often we functionally act that way. We, we act like there's still a division. And one of the things I love about what you're doing and what I, I think happens anytime we go through the Bible straight through, I, I have a Bible study that's been meeting for over 10 years now, we're in Revelation. We started in Genesis, and then we're going to start back in Genesis again. Um, what I love about doing that sort of thing is it reveals God's love throughout the Bible. And something that people have said in that Bible study as we've gone on that journey is how much clearer it is to them now the God of the Old Testament is a loving and merciful God. He's the same God that you see in the New Testament. And so often when, when we don't feel that way, I think it's because maybe we see a few passages that that make us uncomfortable in the Old Testament. 
And we use those to justify not digging into it more. And when we just commit to, I'm going to go through it, God uses that to show more of himself to us and to understand more of what he's done in Christ and, and what, he, what he's doing today still. So I think that's a good word. Uh, and I'm excited. I'm sure we'll have some more conversations on the podcast as you're going through this particular pass through the Bible over the next few months. Um, we'll definitely have to return to that. Well, we're out of time. We are indeed. And so uh, I want to thank you all for listening to us again. You can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast hosting service, whether that be Amazon or Apple or whatever have you. Find Zippy the Wonder Snail uh, wherever you find your podcasts and check out OFB.biz and we'll see you next time. It's a joy to be with you and always to be with you, Tim. And with you as well, Jason. <laughs>